Previously on Losing Lost. Number one. Why are Sun and Jin in Australia? <laughs> we do find out, don't we? Do we? Do we? I don't I'm, know. I I'm sure we do. No, uh it's a I wanna say, I don't remember for sure, that it's like a connecting flight to somewhere. But maybe that's not correct. I I mentioned this because I really liked the analogy you gave that this episode is table setting because every other flashback we have seen Locke, jack kate to some extent actually i guess that's the other ones is this really the fourth flashback that we got well now i don't know i can't do math right now point being (laughs) we we find out why each of them are in australia and this one you don't and again it's not like a huge deal but given that so much of this episode left these gaps it's like we spent all this time of sun inside of her house and then oh and she's in australia and it's like that when how yeah i hadn't even thought about that that is weird i i have to assume that when we get to Jin's episode or sun's next episode they will tell us why they were in australia but it is it is you're right it's indicative of the very fragmentary way that we get information in these flashbacks that they give us no explanation for why they're there. And the conclusion that we draw is either that they were there for some kind of vacation or they were there or they always lived there. And I, I, my assumption is always that the flashbacks take place in South Korea, but obviously that last one can't. So yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And then my only other one was whose side you were on uh, Jax or Saeed's. Cause when we left the, the call, I was like, I think I'm on, Jack's side. And I think you said you were on Saeed's. Yes. Uh, if I were, um, if I knew nothing about, if I was just one of the survivors, I would definitely be on Saeed's side. I would want to, I would hold out hope that somebody is coming to rescue us and I would stay on the beach in order to facilitate that, like keeping the fire going, um, you know, spelling out something like uh, Bernard tries to do in that very boring <laughs> season two episode. Man, I can't wait for that episode. Why? I because I I can assure you I have only ever seen that episode once. <laughs> I don't think I've ever returned to that episode. I, I mean, yeah, there's a. I mean, again, I I did not enjoy season two, so I'm very curious about it. But yeah, I I think I was on Team Jack. Well, again, I'm on Team Jack if I know that the message has been out there for 16 years. To me, it would make more sense to like let's go investigate because. But you want to stay like, on the island. We've established that you you don't want to. You don't want to go. Yeah. Is, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. I will say I, when I did reread the list of who who is on Team Beach versus Team Cave, Team Beach does sound more fun with uh, <laughs> Saeed, Kate, Sawyer, Boone, Shannon, Michael, and Walt. But I, uh, you know, I'll, I'll deal with Michael. <laughs> This is a complete tangent, but I, speaking of the beach, I just read an interview with Damon Lindelof that said in the original uh, script for the pilot, after the group goes to the hill to um, send a signal um, and they hear the transmission from the French woman, they come back to the beach and 30 people have disappeared. I kind of love that. Yeah, that that's how the, the pilot was originally supposed to end. And I was um, I was like, whoa, that's great. Um so yeah, that's a interesting little tidbit. Yeah, I'll probably bring that up. I have some. Um, I found some interviews with David Lindelof that we could do like a separate episode where we just talk about like the history of the writing of the show or something. And how he's so full of shit. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I, I I feel like I I must be being too harsh on David Lindelof, but I I don't think I am. I don't know. I, <laughs> yeah, I I mean they. <laughs> Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, anyway, I'll consider that one wrapped up so that right. we can do an in- intro into the next one. All right. Um, how are we going to do this? So um, welcome to the podcast, brother. Welcome to the podcast, brother. Oh, you're getting really good at that. I thought <laughs> for the sake of this episode, you'd be like, welcome to the podcast, baby brother. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we have so much to talk about. Um, I am the elder brother, Pierce Nahigian. 
And I am the uh, baby brother, Derek Hobson. <laughs> and this is Losing Lost. Uh, today we are talking about Lost Season 1, Episode 7, The Moth, uh, which first aired on ABC on November 3rd, 2004. Uh, Derek, I will throw it to you first. Um, what did you think of The Moth? You know, last episode you said, what makes a good Lost episode? Mm-hmm. And uh, it caught me off guard. I watched this episode with eyes open and was like, this is a good episode of Lost. <laughs> this, is, this is the show that doesn't feel like homework. And yeah, I adore it. I feel the same way about this episode as I did about the walkabout episode in just, this is great television. It's great storytelling the uh, themes that they have don't beat you over the head with it. <laughs> I, it does really uh, just interrupt you really quickly. This episode, I think more so than I think most of the episodes we've seen, you really feel the theme moving through this one of, of Charlie's, his perceived inadequacy and his transformation and the, the struggle of that. Like they, they take that metaphor of the moth and really run with it. And it, it, it is really, it's a beautifully crafted episode in that from beginning to end, it, it has a very complete, it's a very complete story. And uh, I, re- I really appreciate that. Exactly. And that's the thing. I, when I compare this episode to the previous one, the previous episode has two questions that the entire episode hinges on, which is, why did Jin beat up Michael mm-hmm. and or or how how does Sun speak English or why why you know like they're both these reveals and it's it's unsatisfying because the watch there's no real weight there. This mm-hmm. is just you might as well chalk it up to yeah, he has a temper, as he said. This one, yeah, they even throw in there how the the cocoon how it's kind of like a confessional, which again mm-hmm. ties into that. You've got Charlie bouncing back and forth between Jack, who has been established as the man of science, versus Locke, the man of faith, but also seeing that happy balance in there. And it's still, it, even though it's a very Charlie centric episode, other stuff is happening. There a are lot characters. of other stuff, yeah. Yeah, and I just, it, the questions that are left are significant but for instance saeed getting clonked on the back of the head yeah the episode doesn't hinge on that no we don't that's completely left hanging and you're like whoa what's what's gonna happen who did that what's go yeah this this is an episode that i i was so happy that it holds up uh because i haven't seen it in years so i i adored it my favorite so far how did you feel about it I thought it was good. I thought it was very good. Uh, I have some issues with Charlie comes off as so much more pathetic in this that I then than he had previously. But I also think that that has to do with the fact that something we've talked about in previous episodes, which is that you know prior to a care uh, an actor having uh, their character centric episode, they don't really know the full story of their characters, and so. Whereas in the previous episodes, Charlie is much more of a, well, yeah, I do heroin, but I'm more, I'm kind of a fun guy. In this, he play he plays up a lot more of the. Uh, I'm really dealing with some 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 family issues and inadequacy issues, but it did give his character more weight than he had previously. I don't think I love this one as much as you do. Well, I, obviously, I don't love this one as much as you do. You 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 sincerely love this episode, but I I. I agree that it is a top tier episode and it's a very good episode. We had talked about uh, checking out like who's writing the different episodes and if there's a a pattern Um, of something that's very interesting is that this episode was co-written by Paul Dini. Um, Are you familiar with that name? I am familiar with the name, but I don't know why. Paul Dini is to put it quite simply a fantastic, 
fantastic uh, writer of comic books and animated series. He is a producer on Batman the Animated Series. Uh, he co-created the character of Harley Quinn. He created uh, Batman Beyond. And um, he's great. Uh, he's a great writer. And it was not surprising at all to see that this was one of uh, his. Um, the other writer is, I want to say, Jennifer Johnson, um, who I, whose work I, I don't know. Um, but I am very familiar with Paul Dini. Uh, and it's not surprising to me that he was on the writing staff because I know that – so J.J. Abrams and Dame Lindelof are both huge nerds and both were big comic book fans. And I know that other comic book writers, at least one more, have written for Lost. Another one was um, Brian K. Vaughn, who um, listeners might know as the writer of a lot of things um, like Ex Machina, um, but most recently Saga. Um, but the, the fact that they carry through this metaphor of the moth through like the whole episode, it's very much, it reminds me of like a, like a self-contained, like one shot comic where you really get a, a, a full picture of like this character. And, um, and he's great at that. Um, as, as you know, from like any episode of the Batman animated series. Yeah, that's a, uh, oh man, that is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gosh, I love this episode. <laughs> I, I want them all to be this way. Yeah, we are at the Moth is episode seven, and I believe after this episode, J.J. Abrams parted ways with the show. So, oh. moving forward from this episode, it will be interesting to see because I, I I think from season eight onwards, that's when Damon Lindelof becomes showrunner, and then. I don't know if it's the end of this season or the beginning of next season that um, Carlton Cuse and Damon Lindelof are co-showrunners. Um, but yes, JJ stayed, I believe, only for the first seven episodes and then moved on to other projects. So after this, uh, JJ's hand is off the steering wheel and Lindelof, uh, that's when the show really starts to get more into the mythology and more into the magical stuff. Gotcha. I um, This is unrelated to that. One of the other things I really loved about this, this really felt like we were seeing things unfold and characters react from Charlie's point of view. Mm-hmm. Because as I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain you have taken notes on this as well, but a very, very surprisingly comforting Jack in this episode. Yes! Yes! Jack is very nice in this episode. He is understanding. He is caring. Even the tone of his voice in the first scene with him and Kate, it's so funny. I don't know if Matthew Fox did this on purpose or if it they're using different sound equipment, but... Jack's voice sounds different in this episode. It sounds softer or 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 kind. I don't know. I don't know what the difference is, but there's a yes. You're absolutely right. There's a definite difference. There is a I the specific note I wrote was Jack is uncharacteristically gentle. <laughs> yeah, this is um I think I said this either last episode or the episode before, but this it 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 feels like this is more the Jack that I remember from the show. So I I'm I'm curious if the writers were deliberately trying to soften his hard edges or if it was a decision that Matthew Fox was making, like he was just reading his lines differently. But um, yeah, com- this Jack compared to like – I feel like the Jack from the first couple episodes, like when his arm was dislocated, he would have like <laughs> – just been like, try not to fuck this up, Charlie. Like, <laughs> no, exactly. You can even look at this as when Charlie picks up the medical bag and it opens. Yep. Yeah. Very like, not even like sarcastic. Says, "Oh, it's okay. Don't, I know you didn't know." I I but, was shocked. I was like, "What? What are you? What are you, Jack? Are you are you diving into Charlie Stash? Like, what's going on?" I think. I don't know if it's part of the softening of Jack or if it's the fact that we find out at the end of the episode that Jack definitely knows what's going on with Charlie and he's just he's treating him with kid gloves he's trying to be uh gentle with him because he knows what he's going through but um but yes that I I too was also surprised I I get maybe I think Jack just really likes being in the caves that's just what it is he just feels good there it's his happy place (laughs) um but no, you know what? No, and I, I do think it's beyond. I think you're, and I think it's a Matthew Fox thing because 
Yeah, his even that it, it, beginning exchange that he has with Kate, he basically reacts to her like, why don't you want to move in with me? Yes. Yep. <laughs> Up until this point, like the last episode, you checking me out? No, I'm thinking about how to practically move everyone to the cave. Think about how cool caves are. <laughs> I, I also, uh, yeah, it's also the Jack and Kate thing where it's – it's a it's a known thing amongst all of the survivors that Jack and Kate might not be together, but if Jack is in a bad situation, you need to tell Kate. Like she has to be told. Like it's. I mean, we'll get to that, but um, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. This was a this was a really fun episode. It's um, it's really nice. Unlike in several previous episodes, we do not begin immediately on an eye, but on Charlie's guitar strings. And then the swift camera swiftly moves to uh, his eyes, and he is looking very strung out. Pun intended. Yes. <laughs> Log tells him some fresh air will do him some good. Back at the beach, uh, Jack is looking at Kate's mugshot. Uh, she catches him doing it. Kate says, uh, "I take take better pictures than that." She tells Jack, uh, "You're mad at me." Uh, this feels so much like it's like God, just kiss. You two need to just. You, you two are clearly mad about each other. You're, 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 you're crazy about each other, you crazy kids. It's you, you had mentioned on a previous episode that you're so hot and cold on Jack and Kate, you don't know what their status is supposed to be. And yet again, I feel like last episode they were on such different wavelengths, and all of a sudden, I, you know what? I'll be more fair than that. It's not all of a sudden. They have made a conscious decision to separate, and... These two characters are close enough that even being separated for a for a night has told them I I miss this person and I would like to be nicer. I think that's what it is. Um, All right. He says uh, you should have come with me. Dot 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 us. Oh yeah. He he says they crashed eight days ago, so we're we're officially more than a week on this island. They talk about Saeed's plan to stop the Frenchwoman's signal. And Jack says the uh, definitive words, I wish I shared your faith. They are interrupted by Sawyer, who claims Jack's tent. Uh, Jack is annoyed and leaves. Sawyer just coming in, being a real douche and uh, making a crass joke about sharing his tent with Kate and uh, not, not making any friends today. I, I got to say, I don't remember liking Sawyer this much this soon, but Josh Holloway has a tremendous smile. He does. Big old dimples. <laughs> and yeah, just uh, more than one occasion in this episode, I appreciate his his candor and yeah, God, he's he's so jolly. <laughs> <laughs> jolly is a good word. I do remember, I think I said before that Locke was my favorite character the first time I watched it. Sawyer was easily a very close second. So it is it is wonderful to see him coming to the fore. I was surprised on this rewatch that I had remembered there being so much more Sawyer. And I think it's, I think we, we we're starting to get some really good Sawyer moments because I think the writers are really understanding how to, how to write for him. Because as we mentioned before, Sawyer in the first few episodes, certainly in the pilot, is almost a different character. He's much gruffer. He's much more nasty. Um, not very charming. Racist. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he's still a little racist, but in that kind of like... But acknowledging his racism? Yeah. Uh, whereas it was a lot less self-conscious before. Yeah. Um, and it's it's, yeah, it's great to see. Uh, we also get a great shirtless scene of him later, which oh, just uh, just a a big hunk of man there. Well, that's uh, the thing. I I know we talked about this before, but it really is still so weird to me how young everyone looks to me now. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> it really, uh, yeah, it scares me a little bit. But uh, <laughs> oh, speaking of appearances, uh, Jack has some very believable eight day stubble. Um, I wanted to call out just the scruff that Jack has. It seems like it's I'm 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 always very appreciative of details like that, especially on a show like this that has that shoots so many episodes in a season. Um, that's some continuity that I I really uh, I have to applaud. Oh, for sure. And whoever's in charge of the uh, 
like the scars or not scars even necessarily, but the uh, cuts and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I did notice on this one, Jack's cuts, like really scabbing in a way that they would scab. Yeah. Yeah. And they're really like fading over time. I, um, that's a really good shout out. Okay. Uh, we get back to Charlie who is being chased through the jungle. Uh, you would think after the first boar like squeal that he would know that that's not Locke, but he just keeps being like, Locke, is that you? (laughs) He's like, no, it's not. You know, that's not him. You blame it on the withdrawal. (laughs) Uh, we get our first flashback Uh, Charlie is in a confessional the priest tells him that we all have temptations giving into them that's your choice he tells Charlie he has some choices to make and Charlie says he's going to quit driveshaft I had forgotten and it seems silly now that I think about uh, what happens in later episodes but I'd I'd forgotten that Charlie used to be extremely devout he he apparently takes all this very seriously Um, <laughs> I enjoyed uh, him using the word relations to describe what he was going through uh, with his groupies. <laughs> he talks to his big brother, Liam. Uh, Liam tells him that they've been signed. The fact that he's named Liam, I think, is a very clear shout out to uh, Drive Shaft is kind of modeled after the British band Oasis, um, which if you are familiar, uh, Liam and Noel Gallagher had a very, I'm not even, contentious is is understating it. They had a uh, toxic relationship, uh, which destroyed their band. (laughs) And they are still uh, arguing with each other to this day. Um, Oh, boy. Anyway, so back uh, on the island, Locke has used Charlie as bait for a boar. Um, We have finally settled our debate as to whether or not Locke is actually catching boar um, or if Smokey's doing it for him. Um, (laughs) So... It looks like they really got a boar into a net. That that all looked very real. Um, so I'm I'm curious if it was just some some really good CG or if um, they really managed to get a, a a wild pig into a net like that. Yeah, I don't know. I I will say I that's another thing that just feels so good. One of those consistency things that each time we see Locke, the boar is in a new stage of <laughs> uh, being prepared. Yeah. <laughs> And to your point, um, last episode or the episode before, um, we do not see Locke make the killing blow on the boar. So there may be some some uh, rating restrictions on being able to show that. I know that we saw Jin like bashing a fish uh, in an earlier episode. I mean, I don't know if fish count. Uh, yeah, I know. So. <laughs> it's like different <laughs> rules for fish. I also, so I should have called this out when you mentioned it, but since we, we did move past it, uh, Liam's shirt. Is easily. I didn't know. I, I what, what like, is this? What is the shirt? It just says "music slut." <laughs> I, I, I I completely just, I, missed that. It's and the S in music makes then the S in slut as well. I just I just loved it. I thought it was so funny. Liam, the I don't know if it's the actor or if it's just the writing where I'm just like I this I I don't I don't care for him. I he feels like a non-entity. I don't I don't believe anything that's happening there. Um you you, you bring up a good point cuz I remember the first time I watched it thinking that the the brother was dis- disingenuous. Yeah. Dis- but yeah, <laughs> um this time around I did think he was legitimately genuine. When he's like uh, in the in the first couple scenes, when he's like, "Oh yeah, uh, we got this baby brother," or you know, it seemed like he was genuinely excited. And then I obviously I love that it turns into by like his second to last flashback, where he's just like, "I'll piss off or sort off." <laughs> it's like, oh boy. But no, I I felt like he was being honest. But I also he's got such a great smile. I yeah I so Liam says. He calls himself just the pretty face that sings the songs, and he he just feels he feels so empty to me when he when he when Charlie's like, well, if we say enough's enough, and we'll walk away from all of this, and Liam's like, yeah, sure, sure, of course, and I'm just like, I don't I don't trust this guy for a second. <laughs> uh, but I've also seen you know an innumerable number of musical biopics, and it always goes that way. So I I won't hold it against Lost for sticking to those conventions. <laughs> Um, Charlie demands his drugs. Uh, Locke says he will give them back if Charlie asks three times. I really like Locke's uh, knife flick when he says this counts as one. I don't – 
that just the the sound there and the way that he just flips that knife out i was like yeah that was uh that's pretty cool he says choice I, is all that separates us from animals um and then he kills the boar i did really love that i thought that um I also I love how he's like oddly impatient about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this counts as one. Like it's not like you know. Oh, I'm gonna give you three warnings. He's like, (laughs) this is number one. Do this two more times. Yeah, (laughs) it's a it's a sharp contrast from last episode where he was very he was very gentle with Charlie, and this one he's like, I'm I'm being serious with you. I'm I'm not I'm not messing around. Uh, and that look of disgust that he gives Charlie at the end when Charlie asked for the drug the third time. Oh, it was probably if any if Terry O'Quinn looked at me like that, I would poop my pants. I uh, it's it's just like, oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, Dad. I didn't mean to I didn't mean to disappoint. Yeah. <laughs> Back at the beach, Said explains his triangulation plan to Boone and Kate. Uh, I would like to point out that both Boone and Kate uh, eventually abandoned this plan. Uh, both Boone and Kate give this responsibility to other people. <laughs> yes, and that's the thing. Not only do they give it to other people, they literally give it to the two people who would be the worst two people to trust with the plan. <laughs> Um, evidently fireworks smuggling from Sydney to the United States is a thing. They do, but they don't have a working transceiver battery. So, uh, Kate goes to Sawyer, who is reading Watership Down and asks, uh, if he has a laptop. He asks if Kate is upset about her breakup with Jacko. Uh, she gives him guff about being a shitty person. Uh, he gives her a laptop battery and says, all you had to do was say please. And it's, it becomes clearer and clearer, I think, with, with each episode that Sawyer is very much, much like Locke. Uh, playing a role of being a, an asshole, and he he has this look later on uh, when he's talking to Kate about Jack, where he looks so hurt to be who he is, <laughs> like that he has. This is the only way he knows how to be, and he knows that nobody likes him, and and it hurts. It hurts him on the inside, and I. Uh, we we keep congratulating the various actors here for doing a good job, but they really do. And um, you know, Josh Holloway, uh, not least among them. Uh, yeah. Wait, just briefly on that though, too. I um, I a I didn't like the writing on Kate's part. It felt very juvenile. It juvenile is the right word. She feels very petulant here. Like yeah. she's not even giving him the time of day. She's just completely written him off. And it's it seems like she would be a little bit more friendly to him just because there's only like, I don't know, six of them left on the beach. And instead, she just treats him like dirt. Yeah, I, I, it's so needlessly hostile. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure. I don't know. You know what? We say it's needlessly hostile, but he has been low key sexually harassing her for the entire time they've been on the beach. And that is, we do have to, we do have to recognize that. But I do agree that the writing is, it, the writing should be better for her because it's, I feel that this scene is really meant to just set us up for later on when she just won't even give Sawyer the time of day and he, out of his own pettiness, decides not to tell her about Jack. We have to start them off at a very cool level and then have to get even colder from there so but yeah it's it it seems like that could have been handled a little bit more maturely yeah but i hear what you're saying because yeah then it 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 gives sawyer more motivation later in this episode Mm -hmm. so all right yeah yeah all right all right back in the caves charlie tries to help hurley and jack with the bags uh jack notices that charlie is looking at diazepam um which is for anxiety um, my original note was as a doctor, it seems like Jack should ex- suspect what's going on with Charlie. And then we find at the end of the episode, he absolutely knows what's going on with Charlie. And he's just trying to be nice about it. What he tells him at the time is that he might be dehydrated and he should go, you know, take care of himself. And Charlie's reaction is to sit down right next to the water and not take a drink. Uh, he just <laughs> picks up his guitar. <laughs> Um, we go to another flashback. Uh, Charlie and Liam are arguing over over being famous. Um, we learn Charlie writes the songs and Liam just sings them. 
Charlie claims to love the band, but it's not who he is. Uh, he says, sometimes I just get lost in it. Title drop. He asks, Oh, I totally missed that. <laughs> Uh, he asks Liam to promise him if things get too crazy, they'll walk away. Liam's like, of course, yeah, absolutely. I'll totally walk away from being a rock god. That's definitely something I'll do. In the cave, Jin's handcuff is chas- chafing his wrist. He tells Sun for the umpteenth time that what she's wearing is indecent. Uh, but for the very first time, she tells him it's too hot. And his reaction is just like, I, uh, uh, how, uh, uh. Uh, she's not wrong. It does look very hot there. Yeah, well, I did like that. I in my head, my head canon is that Jin's like, but what would your father say? And then realizing, like, it has been eight days, maybe he is gone. Yeah, but um, but yes, I did. I did appreciate that she 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 clapped back. You know? She did. She stood up for herself. Hurley brings Charlie his guitar case. Uh, Charlie jumps on the chance to tell him he's in drive shaft. Uh, it's painful every time. In fact, it gets it gets more painful every time this happens. Uh, Hurley looks very awkward and says Jack just says it's in the way. Uh, this clearly triggers something in Charlie. Charlie goes into the cave to confront Jack, who absolutely he tells uh, he's implying that uh, Charlie's on drugs by saying he's not himself. Um, and Charlie is clearly transferring his feelings of brotherly betrayal onto Jack. Um, his shouting causes a cave in. Uh, Charlie gets out, but Jack is trapped inside. And I wrote down here, you know, it might be the lighting, but the caves look really fake. Um, it's very clearly a set. It, I don't think it would be so glaring if, like, every other shot in the show isn't on location. Um, like, you have all of this shot on the north side of uh, Oahu, I think. And it's it's so clear that they're really there. They're They're on this, you know, real place. And then everything inside the cave... It looks fake. Like the fronds look fake. The lighting looks fake. The the rocks look fake. I no. I I I'm right there with you. And I I think that they've always looked fake. Mm. I thought they looked so fake that that's why they upped the amount of mud and dirt <laughs> in this episode, <laughs> which made everything look a little more real to me. <laughs> because I'm thinking, oh, that's not made out of styrofoam because. They touched it and they got muddy. You know, like it, <laughs> uh, it has texture. It's a very, it was a, it was a filthy episode. I wonder if, um, if it looked better, you know, back in 2004 when this was on TVs. Like considering like how how high definition like our TVs are now, but it's certainly the modern TVs don't do them any favors. Hurley tells Charlie to get help and make sure you tell Kate. Oh, and I've written an asterisk here. The conversation that Syed and Kate have here in the, as they're walking through the jungle, I think, is very indicative of the our original theory that this was supposed to be purgatory. Saeed is telling Kate, no one's as lucky as they are. We sh- he literally says, we shouldn't have survived the crash. Um, Kate's like, well, it's just dumb luck. It's blind. No, she says, it's blind dumb luck. Some things just happen. And Saeed who, as we know, is a has a scientific mind. Like, he is a smart guy. He's an engineer. He knows how things work. And he's just like, uh, no. We, the tail broke off, and we cartwheeled through the jungle, and most of us got out without a scratch. That's simply not possible. I, yeah. I, I really appreciated that, that, that they've mentioned this now. I kind of wish, it's one of those things that, I guess with deep fakes, they could go back and remake the show, but I do think it would be awesome to just have it in purgatory. <laughs> and frankly, based off of the episodes we've seen so far, I feel like this would easily play into Flash Sideways because even though there may be a reason, such as Jack knowing that Charlie is going through withdrawal, it does feel like each centric episode you know, since you see it from the character's point of view, Charlie's Jack is a different Jack than in Jack's. <laughs> st- you know what I mean? Like that you could, if you wanted. Getting real existential with it. I know 2004 was not the time for that. <laughs> but with with 2023 and Netflix <laughs> running out of ideas, uh, I, I feel like that's absolutely what they would do. <laughs> uh, we have, I believe canonically uh our first mention of steve and scott yes um i i had completely forgotten about them until that they were mentioned 
Um, I believe, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it becomes a running gag throughout the show that people keep uh, mixing up Steve and Scott until one of them, I think, dies at a later season. Um, <laughs> so um, Yeah, I distinctly remember Hurley having that line of like, Scott, Steve's dead, dude. That's what Lost isn't messing around anymore. So uh, everybody runs to, to help uh, with the cave-in. Boone leaves Shannon in charge of his rocket. Shannon makes a joke. I completely missed it. I thought that she genuinely wasn't paying attention to what he was saying. And he's like, he's like, did you get all that? And she's just like, I'm sorry, the thing goes where? And he's just like, cut those shirt in. And she's like, yeah, I got it, whatever. Uh, I completely missed that. God bless you, Shannon. <laughs> I will say, I love that when Boone turns around to Shannon, he does talk to her like he's talking to a six-year-old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I uh, I hardly remember Boone and Shannon being in the last episode. And as we keep saying uh, in the show, every time they show up again, I'm just so happy. <laughs> okay. I mean, I think that was a big problem with the last episode is no Boone and Shannon. There you go. That's it. That's the secret sauce. Yeah, that's, the, that's why the other seasons didn't do as well. No Boone and Shannon. Oh, man. Do you remember how... Shannon dies. That's so fucked up. I, yeah, <laughs> I can't can't go there right now. But okay, um, Sawyer uh, is shirtless. He is beautiful. He's just huge, dude. He just he looks great. He looks oh man, looks good. Um, he tells Charlie, "You just keep doing whatever it is you do around here," um, which is the absolute worst thing to say to Charlie at this time. We get a flashback. Uh, Liam steals Charlie's chorus. Uh, Charlie confronts him about it in the green room and Liam just blows him off. Uh, Charlie sees him about to do heroin with a lady back in the caves. Michael stops people from digging it out. And my man shows some authority. He worked in, he worked eight years in construction. We have another use of that arc number, number eight. Michael just kicks ass here. Uh, he sizes up the situation. He gives everyone something to do. And Walt gets to see his dad take charge. Michael, uh, best character on the show? Best character on the show. <laughs> no, I, I, same thing. I, I, I genuinely paused and was like, he's got a purpose. And he's... Yeah, thank God they gave him something to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you notice too? I, I know this comes later, but since it's like a very small anecdotal thing. I did. I was like, damn, Michael, you're like the low key superstar of mm -hmm. this episode. But when he corrects Hurley's ongoing racism, yes. of, oh, the Chinese people and Michael corrects him. Yes. Thank Thanks, Jennifer Johnson and Paul Dini, the writers of this episode, for finally giving us a version of Michael that we can like, that we can root for. It's funny that. You know, he just now pulls out. I worked out in construction in eight years. But honestly, up to this point, that wasn't relevant at all. Why would it have ever come up? Um, once again, what's what's genius about this show is that, you know, you have the immediate events of what's going on now on the island. But you always get to just pull out stuff from people's backgrounds that, you know, is is relevant to the plot or, you know, just is an interesting subplot. It's cool. It's like it's like, oh, OK, so that's that's what Michael does. And. You know, he's he's not a doctor, he's not a rock star, but he does know how the distribution of weight works, and he knows how to deal with this kind of a uh, very specific kind of crisis. I, I love it. I love it. Which, I will say, missed opportunity here to have a scene, because I don't think this ever happens at any point, but missed opportunity for Walt to at some point complain to his dad about where they're living on the beach, being like, I thought you were in construction. Shouldn't you be able to build us a better beach house? <laughs> <laughs> so Sawyer meets up with Kate and Said in the jungle, um, but Kate pisses him off, so he doesn't tell her about Jack, and sticks around to quote unquote help, which is the cherry on top of the asshole cake right there. Charlie asks Locke once more for his drugs uh, while Locke is butchering the boar. Locke points out that this is the second time he's asked, and then shows him a moth cocoon. And as much as I love this scene, and I do. I have to think that only one of two things is true. Either Locke hung up that boar right near that moth cocoon in anticipation of Charlie showing up so that he could tell him about the moth. Or Locke is the best improvisational leadership speaker the world has ever known. And that he just like 
Charlie comes to him for drugs. And he just takes a quick look around the jungle and goes, all right, I'm going to talk about this moth over here. I, I, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. It's, uh, Do you think that Locke, just for an hour, has just been butchering this this boar and is just like, oh, okay, there's a, there's a chrysalis here. Charlie comes over here. I'm going to tell him about the struggle of the moth, and he's going to listen to me, and he's going to get it, and it's going to be, and he's going to do the right thing. You know, I, um, I, I know I hadn't, that deep. no, no, I, I hadn't even <laughs> thought about it. Uh, in fact, I would almost, my, my headcanon for this would be that he was kind of carving up a board and it's like, what's that? Uh, oh that's a bot and then thought of and yeah improv improvise it on the spot <laughs> i loved this because i did have to call this out because i have watched a lot of crappy tv and i know that in so many so so many medical dramas there will always be a character that says have, have you ever heard the story of the mom <laughs> as they're doing surgery and i'm thinking like you did 12 years of schooling and <laughs> You're going to tell us now that at one point you read some myth- mythology literature. <laughs> like, it's, I know that medical shows have to find a way to make their characters interesting. But you see this even in cop dramas and stuff where someone will pull out a myth or some sort of story uh-huh. out of nowhere. In the West Wing, it makes sense because you've got this poet laureate nobel prize winning <laughs> literary president <laughs> surrounded by the smartest people who speaks the- latin who speaks latin of course but that is one of the things i love about lost is that i bought into it because it's locked that mm-hmm. if saeed was like you see this thing here i'd be like what is going on <laughs> you know, what are you doing but no because you have a character like Locke, he can do this and i'm on board yeah yeah, if any character would know super obscure stuff about uh, different species, uh, especially ones in like a jungle setting, it absolutely would be Locke. I actually looked this up as to see, because he talks about how um, he could help it, but it would emerge too weak to survive. The struggle is nature's way of strengthening. Um, I've heard this story before in church, and so I was looking it up if this is actually true. Um, because what I had heard was that both butterflies and moths need to crawl through the chrysalis and like they're like the, it's not the fat, but like the fluids in their body, like gets like compressed from inside their like abdomen into their wings. And that's what creates the wings. And if you, you cut open a chrysalis, then they don't get to do that. And they emerge with like, you know, messed up, folded up wings and they can't fly. Um, that's not exactly true from what I have read. The reason they say you shouldn't cut open the chrysalis is because it's extremely delicate structure and there's no way that you could do it, you know, uh, with enough precision to not like hurt the butterfly or the moth. And then what they have to do is they have to hang on the chrysalis so you can't damage it. And then like by staying upside down, fluid fills the, um, the wings and fills them out and allows them to dry. So the... The general thing of, like, you can't help the butterfly is true. But as to whether or not the struggle itself is necessary, I, I think it's a little bit of poetic license. But I could be wrong. If we have any listeners on this podcast uh, who know about Lepidoptera and uh, uh, entomology, uh, please, please correct me. I can tell you, we have raised ladybugs and butterflies as one of those science take-home projects. Where, or you order them online and they come in a little yeah. jar of where they eat and poop and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we, we've done this twice with the butterflies. And one of the times the butterflies cocoon did fall. Ooh. And I could see that it was moving, but it was stuck. The chrysalis had like hardened on its face. Ooh. I uh, very, very gently managed to get the chrysalis off its face. I did not puncture an eye or anything. I literally found a spot where I, I put a little dropper because uh, I had to moist. I read that you had to moisten it, so I put a little dropper on to moisten yeah. it, and eventually I did get the the chrysalis off. But I was like, "Oh great, I saved it! I can't believe I saved it!" I was so proud of myself. But because I got to the butterfly so late, yeah, the wings stayed shriveled, folded, mm-hmm. and it, it just kind of limped around until eventually it it died. Oh boy. Uh, because, yeah, they, they need to be able to emerge and get those wings uh, to, yeah, unfold. And yeah. Otherwise, they, they just don't. That's the, that's the story of, of the moth. 
back in the cave. Jack is pinned under a rock and he can't move. Uh, Michael says they're going to get him out. Saeed, back in the forest, says he doesn't trust Sawyer or trust him with Kate. Back in the cave, uh, Michael corrects Hurley and says that Jin's Korean, uh, as you pointed out. Once again, taking charge. Uh, I love this. Charlie volunteers, says he's small enough to squeeze through the hole, says he's alone. He doesn't have any family, so he can do it. We get back to Sawyer and Kate uh, just hanging out, having a chat. Sawyer asks Kate why she likes Jack, and he reveals Jack was buried in the cave. Um, This is incredibly cold. This is a very cold thing to do. But when she leaves him, he has this look that is so genuinely sad. And as we mentioned before, uh, it's it's clear that he is putting on this front of being an asshole who doesn't care about anything. But he he does. He does. And he it's he this is how he interacts with the world. And it's and it hurts him. But that's just that's just his nature. He's uh, he's like the scorpion on the on the frog's back to use another uh, fable. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, and that's, but that's, that's, that's okay. Cause you're not a doctor who focuses on yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Kate's expression. When he tells her that Jack got buried, she looks so genuinely hurt. It is it. You really feel it. Like she's not even mad. She just gets this look on her face of like terror that like something has happened to Jack that maybe he's dead and she's never going to see him again. It's um, it really cements that notion that, they're not a couple, but they're a couple. <laughs> we get a flashback. Uh, Charlie's in the green room. He tells Liam that they're walking away. Liam says he is drive shaft. He says uh, Charlie's just the bass player. Nobody cares. And he says if Charlie isn't in drive shaft, uh, what use is he? And uh, he storms off, and Charlie turns to drugs for the pain. I remembered watching this and not thinking. I was like, oh, I thought for sure his brother would have given him the drugs, but he just goes to it. Yeah. Which I remember at the time being disappointed in because I I just, I don't know. It felt less organic to me, but uh, I really like now uh, Liam's argument for why they should be doing drugs, basically. When he's (laughs) like, this is it. This is the end of the bloody rainbow. Yeah. In, in that one line, I'm like, oh, yeah, he's going to ride the high till he's dead. Yeah. I also think that it would have made more sense for Liam to get Charlie into drugs, especially as like, it seems like the scene would make more sense if, you know, he's he's trying to make Charlie feel better or trying to be like, you know, just the bass player, just enjoy this. Like, you know, here, have some of this. Because I don't know a lot about heroin, but I do know that you typically want to have somebody around you when you're doing it for the first time so that you don't overdose and just die. But as we've seen both with Liam and with Charlie, that they're not in, they don't seem to be injecting the heroin ever. They're just ever eating it or putting it on their gums. So. That also feels like maybe it's a 2004 thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, you can't bring out a needle. It also, <laughs> and again, yeah, and again, this, I mean, babe, again, any people who are familiar with drugs, uh, let me know. But it also, I don't know, I, the, the, the heroin that they have always just looks like, I don't know, like peanut butter that they have. Like, it, it just looks very ch- like. Yeah, that kinetic sand stuff is what yeah. I'm thinking about. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, maybe that's what heroin looks like. I don't know. I, you know, I... no. I, I mean, I don't know either. I'm willing to bet though that because this, they just nailed it with the theming in this episode. Because I also realized, we, but we bypassed the part when uh, Charlie, of course, says, "I'm a bloody rock god." Yeah, and the rocks come down. But also that the heroin, the way that they camouflage it is in these film canisters, like mm-hmm. the cave or I was like, oh, you know, I wonder if there's something to that too. That oh, they're like, man. oh, this is how you disguise it. They just, ah, oh, the theme is so good. The, <laughs> I can imagine somebody, because I'm old, uh, watching this show and being like, what are those? What are those little tubes? Uh, <laughs> those, those do not exist anymore. Those used to be such a big part of my childhood, our childhood. Is that what, what do we what do we call them? We call them canisters. What do we call those little 
tubes. Negative tubes? Film, film tubes? Yeah. Yeah. Heroin. There's also so much heroin that he's just left out. Like, again, I don't know a lot about the lifestyle, but I do know that if you have a serious heroin habit, you don't just leave a room with that much heroin lying around. You're going to bring some with you. But I don't yeah. know. We get to Charlie becoming a literal moth uh, crawling through the tunnel. Rocks fall and collapse again. Kate shows up and starts digging. Uh, inside the cave, Charlie manages to roll the rock off of Jack, but Jack's arm is dislocated. Uh, Jack, as we've mentioned before, is uh, very uh, understanding with Charlie and says, I believe in you. You're going to need to pop this back in. That scene is not as as uncomfortable as I think it could have been, but it does look very painful. <laughs> um, we get to the next flashback, and this flashback made me mad, but just because I want more of the story. So Charlie visits Liam in Sydney. Liam has completely cleaned up his life. Everything is great. And then Liam accuses Charlie of still being a junkie, which seems hypocritical. Um, Charlie <laughs> fires back that Liam did this to him, but Liam does offer to get Charlie help. And Charlie says that Liam never looked out for him. What do you, what do you think of this scene? This is another one where the first time I saw this, I remember feeling Liam was being condescending to Charlie. Yeah. But this time around, I really, I got the impression that he, he cared because he, he doesn't just say, I can get you help. There's great doctors. He also says, stay with us for a few weeks. You know, yeah. he opens yeah. his home to him. Yeah. And you know, they add a little bit of context too, where he says, Oh, this is why you haven't been returning my calls. <laughs> so it's not just, cause I think for some reason in my head, I remembered it being that he does just, it seemingly flits off to Australia to get himself clean and be a family. But he makes it clear even in, in, in that line that it's like, no, um, I, I've, I've been in touch. I've, I've been trying to, you know, see how you're doing and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, and, I, and he mentions that he, he missed the birth of his daughter because of his drug use, because of their touring and has really no interest in, in doing uh, getting the band back together. I also, how many other people are in drive shaft? We never meet any of the rest of the band. <laughs> we, I know what the, no, you're right. Not this episode anyway. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And, and you're right. Like I, that, that's, this is what's so great about it is even though this episode leaves holes that you can't have filled, it, it's not unsatisfying because it does do this at a very slow burn from Charlie prior to stardom to the rise of stardom to the junkie to, Oh, and here's your brother now reformed, uh, <laughs> which yeah, you put some glasses on him, and he looks like... Yeah, he's real, he looks real good. He's he's all cleaned up. Yeah. It's, it's funny, though, with the, the fact that we don't see the other band members, and then the previous episode, we really just have, like, Jin and Son in the apartment. I wonder how much of that is due to the fact that this is such a large ensemble cast on the island that they really can't afford to pay more actors to have speaking roles. So you end up with, like... <laughs> a bunch of like groupies like in the green room, but we're not actually going to give any lines to whoever the hell else is inside this band, at least not in this season. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Just, just to complete that thought though, because I, I, I do want to compare this again to the Jin Sun thing, because there are no load bearing questions <laughs> in this episode. Whereas with Jin and Sun's episode, you're like, you're like, what, what's the deal with Sun's dad? What's he making Jin do? I don't yeah. understand. Or and, even the fact that we are told that the reason Jin attacks Michael is because of the watch, but the watch actually never figures into any of the flashbacks, does it? I want to say I remember it at some point. Her ring, her ring ends up being mentioned, but that watch is just all we know is that it was a gift from her father. But it actually it never shows up in the in the it, it never it, it's never made clear in the flashbacks why the watch is important other than it's very expensive and it was given by her father. And I think that is a failing of that episode that as you're saying, we don't have moments like that in this episode, like all of the flashbacks support what we're seeing on the Island. And it's very, it's, it's very clear why we're seeing what we're seeing and it reinforces the themes of the episode. Yeah. Ah, so good. <laughs> Um, inside the cave, Jack asks Charlie how long it's been since his last fix, confirming that Jack is very aware of what's going on. He tells Charlie he's not useless, 
which seems like something Jack of the previous episodes would not bother to tell anybody. He says he wouldn't have taken Charlie for a religious man, uh, and neither would I prior to uh, the first flashback. Charlie notices a moth, which in a show like this is either sticking with a theme and even when it feels a tiny bit contrived, but you could also very much argue it is the island giving Charlie a sign. And I know people have written off stuff like that in this show, um, but I am very much of the camp that, no, that is what the show is about. This island is sending these survivors messages all the time if they're willing to look. And I I, I, I think yes. that's what it is. No, that was uh, one of my main questions. Like, do you think, and again, I, it goes back to how a lot of these early episodes, how with Jack's, it's like, oh, Jack, you haven't slept in days. Oh, maybe Jack's hallucinating. Or maybe the island is doing something. <laughs> uh, and this one, too, it's like he's going through withdrawal, could be hallucinating. Uh, or Because I, I don't think that Jack did see him off. I think the <laughs> island was telling Charlie, like, you got this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Michael tells Kate that she needs a break. Uh, she will not take a break. Um, inside the cave, Charlie sees light. He's able to dig his way out, co- completing uh, his his transformation uh, into a moth. Kate embraces Jack. It's a lovely moment. And Hurley hugs Charlie, which is an even lovelier moment. And Sight he tells fun. him, dude, you rock. Yes, yes, uh, which is very nice. Uh, I'm sure that made Charlie's uh, lifetime. Saeed fires off his rocket. Shannon almost misses hers, but the woman she's talking to does notice uh, that he's fired the rocket. Um, Saeed turns on the transceiver, and just as he's getting a signal, a stick pops into frame and whacks him over the head. I believe this is the first major blow to the head in the show. Uh, There will be many more to come. Uh, Much more head trauma uh, in store for our characters. Um, and that is where we leave that thread. Like we do not return to that. So we're just left on a, on a, on a cliffhanger there to know like who did, we don't know who did it. We don't know what's become of Saeed. Uh, meanwhile, in the caves, Jack tells Hurley that Charlie has the flu covering for his withdrawals. Walt asks Michael if they can live at the cave. And Michael's reaction is to look at sun and remind I, us of a plot that will go nowhere. Yeah, man. Cause it, because they do build up Jin to be, just be this asshole, and I think up to the reveal of what what his deal is, you're like, oh yeah, Sun should totally get with Michael. Like this is a way healthier relationship. He seems to like her. She seems to have some kind of interest in him. Um, but then we found out we find out later that uh, Sun plus Jin forever. So that's uh, not going to happen. That's never going to happen for Michael. A lot of things are never going to happen for Michael. Um, <laughs> Kate makes Jack a sling. Jack says that Michael checked all the other caves and said they're safe. Charlie goes up to Locke and asks him for drugs. Uh, as we already mentioned, the the look of disgust that he gives him as he hands them over is just palpable. It is, oh, it hurts. Um, but then Charlie uh, throws the drugs into the fire and Locke gives a very warm smile. Charlie sees a moth and his face uh, at the end here. I, I have to believe that with the sort of religious the, – the religious elements that we have in the beginning, Charlie's face at the end is almost akin to uh, like paintings of saints when they're uh, uh, receiving like an ecstatic vision where it's like it's a mixture between like pain and pleasure and, and sorrow and, and awe. It's very much like Charlie is looking up. He's finding redemption he's he's seeing something in that moth and something in himself that he he didn't absolutely did not have at the beginning of this episode and it is it is a it is a beautiful end to an episode um not dissimilar from the end of walkabout where Locke is is looking up and realizing this miracle has happened and um i i, I do feel like there's there's probably they consciously had a parallel there where um Locke has facilitated uh Kind of, kind of a miracle in its own way for Charlie, at least for I'm sure how he feels about it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's glorious. The, it's <laughs> a good word. <laughs> a lesser show would probably say, well, we can't get rid of his drugs because, well, and I mean, I guess the show devolves into this in, a little bit in season two. Yeah, we but, don't have to, yeah. But like, you know, because they do reveal that Charlie has this background of being very faith-driven. Yeah, you've got plenty of story there to tell 
what, where, you know, how did that play into when he was a rock? You know, like there's still, you could still tell more story mm-hmm. uh, with that character without being reliant on the drug aspect. Yeah. It, this episode makes me hopeful that Charlie gets off the island because the last conversation he had with Liam was not a good one. No. <laughs> so, yeah. If I'm remembering correctly, in, in subsequent Charlie flashbacks, we see that Liam was, was an even bigger asshole than, than what we've seen here. But to your point, he was really trying to get Charlie help at the end there. So we, I, I, will, I will give Liam that. But yeah, no, I think overall uh, a, a really great episode of the show and um, really building on the, the blocks that we've established in the previous ones. And next episode, I believe, is a Sawyer episode. So I'm excited for that. Oh, I am so excited. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. Should we call it? Coin your term. We did it. We did it. 